So I have some good news and some bad news and some best news as I begin today. The good news is we are turning today to one of your favorite psalms, most likely. Uh, I was told at least by one website, uh, and I assume this may be the experience of people, that next to Psalm 23, Psalm 121 is the most popular psalm. And that's not surprising because as I've talked to people this week and the psalm starts out about mountains, mountains are a place of refuge and strength and beauty. Then again, most of the people I've talked to this week are here in Hickory, North Carolina, where we live in the foothills and we look at mountains all the time and we get to travel to mountains. Some of you have a place in the mountains. And so it's not surprising that people around here would say like the mountains just represent the beauty and majesty of God. I did talk to one fellow pastor in Florida today, and he said, I don't like mountains. Well, then stay in Florida. Like, don't come up here to North Carolina. Here in Hickory, we tend to associate mountains with uh, uh, retreats and overlooks, with waterfalls and shade, maybe even with long hikes into God's creation, maybe with sunsets and sunrises in the mountains. We love the mountains. That's one reason that we tend to love this psalm. It seems like our psalm. So we read these words, I look up to the mountains, I remember where my strength comes from. Mountains are tall and strong and beautiful and peaceful. So now we get to the bad news. I'm going to ruin Psalm 121 for you today. At least temporarily. But the best news is that after I ruin it, I'm going to restore it for you, and I hope the restoration of the psalm will even be better than the original heart of it. I have to tell you that one of my favorite parts of my job is what I'm doing right now. I love the scriptures. I always have. I was known among my five siblings when I was seven years old as the kid who would sit on his bed and read the Bible. And the older I get, and I've looked back on some of my sermons from my early years at Corinth, and if you don't know this, I've been here a quarter of a century, and I'm a little embarrassed because I didn't do this at times well enough. Now it's like my main way of preaching. I just want to take the text and unfold the text. And I start out with a scripture passage, and sometimes it's very familiar to me, and sometimes it's confusing to me, and sometimes in the course of a week, I see it so differently than where I was on Sunday afternoon, the previous Sunday afternoon or Monday morning, and that happened this week. So, but I love doing that, and I love the challenge of standing up here with you and in about 25 or 30 minutes taking you through the same process that I've been through this particular week. And I enjoy doing that with groups through the week, but then on Sunday morning, as we talked about in Sunday school, it's usually a monologue. Somebody asked me in Sunday school, in fact, it was Lee Gibbs who's sitting on the front row, does anybody ever interrupt you? And I'm going like, I'm watching you from now on, Lee. <laughs> I'm a little worried about that. So generally, people don't interrupt me. They let me do the monologue for 30 minutes, but it's a challenge to let you, by the end of these 30 minutes, to love this particular passage of Scripture as much as I have come to love it over the past week. So what I'm going to ask you to do is lay aside your previous conceptions of what you think this psalm is about and walk with me through it verse by verse. And in order to do that, the best way is to have a Bible open in front of you. So that could be your Bible app. It could be the one in the pew in front of you. It could be the one that you brought with you to church. But let's sort of look at what this psalm actually says line by line. 
More than likely, the first part of verse 1 means the opposite of how we tend to read it. And I don't just mean you, even though I've come across this before, I now realize uh, I didn't, it didn't really register until this week that I've been reading it wrong. And the reason I've been reading it wrong is probably because I grew up in the King James Version. And the King James Version translates verse 1, I lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence cometh my help, period. In other words, in the King James translation, I'm looking up to the hills, and when I look up to the hills, I realize that's where my help comes from. All right? So, punctuation is important when we read anything, and this verse is punctuated wrong in the King James. In most translations, more than likely the translation you're reading it, it is punctuated correctly, and it has a question mark at the end of verse 1. Now, my favorite translation I've read all week, and I've come across several, reads this way. It's from the complete Jewish Bible, if you want to know. If I raise my hill, excuse me, if I raise my eyes to the hills, from where will my help come from? No, they didn't put two froms in there. If I raise my eyes to the hills, from where will my help come? All right? That's a really terrific translation. Because it's quite possible, I would say probable, that the hills at the beginning of verse 1 are not the source of comfort. They are the reason the psalmist needs comfort. When you read the psalm, you you have to take yourself out of your world where you can take a four-lane highway to Blowing Rock or an interstate to Asheville. All right? These are not, this is not the mountain situation the psalmist is writing about. A better way to imagine this psalmist's journey is to think about the Lord of the Rings and Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee traveling to Mordor. They're concerned along the way about predators and sinister forces and the dangers of falling from high cliffs and dangers from mudslides and rocks whether they're going to have enough fresh water or enough food. Will they get lost along the way? Is Gollum a trustworthy guide and friend? Will the sun be too hot during the day or the nights too cold and dark? I remember one Thursday afternoon when I was at Grace Bible Camp near Goshen, Virginia, where we took a mountain hike as a group, and I got lost from the group. And I went down the wrong side of the mountain all by myself as a 14 or 15-year-old kid. And when you're lost on a mountain, it's a very different feeling than just going up because you have a lovely view with an overlook in Blowing Rock. That's not what he's talking about. It's more like, how am I going to get home? Does anybody know where I am? These were the days before cell phones for me. I had to ford a river that was neck high in water. You know, am I going to survive the river? And fortunately, I finally found a highway and flagged down a passing car and they got me back to camp. But that's the situation that the psalmist is facing. So this psalmist needs help to face the mountains. It's going to be a long and arduous and dangerous journey across the mountains. And where will that help come from? And the answer is, it won't come from the mountains. Now, it's not that mountains are always negative in the Bible. David fled to the mountains, actually, as a place of refuge when he was being chased. Jesus went up into the mountains to pray. But in this psalm, the mountains are perilous. 
And the psalmist doesn't really, excuse me, the psalmist does bring us an answer to this dilemma. From where will come my help, he asks? My help comes from the Lord. Now pause just there for a moment. Because the psalmist always has a number of names he can use for God. But the name that the psalmist chooses is Yahweh, which is the personal name for God. It's the name by which God connects in covenant with his people. And he says, my help in the mountains comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Help is an important word in the Bible, so don't overlook it. This Hebrew word is used 21 times in the Old Testament, usually of God, but not always. One exception where it's not used of God is in Genesis chapter 2. And I love this because it reframes Genesis chapter 2 for me. You remember, the man is alone in the garden, and God says, this man needs help. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. So if you've ever thought that that means that God created someone as man's assistant to do his laundry and do all the stuff that he didn't want to do, you don't understand the word help in Hebrew. Most of the time it's used of God. In other words, the real interpretation of Genesis 2 is this guy is so bad off by himself, only someone like God can help him. Let's make a woman. All right? So that's the idea of help. Like it's not an inferior, it's meeting a need. And this psalmist says, my help comes from the personal God, the one whose name I know, the one who knows my name, and this God is the one who made heaven and earth. I don't need help from the mountains. I need help from the one who made the mountains. As when this psalm was written, and here's another way to read this, there were a lot of pagan shrines on the hillsides and in the mountaintops in Judea. And another way to read this, this first verse is to see this, is he saying like, I look up to the mountains and I see all of these shrines to other gods. Is that where my help comes from? No, that's not where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So now go to verses 3 and 4 because we have three different couplets in response. And you'll notice the pronoun changes from I to you in the last six verses of the psalm. So first we have someone speaking, and this is what Lori means when she says this was probably an antiphonal song. Probably someone, maybe an individual, is speaking verses 1 and 2. I lift mine eyes to the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help will come from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And now we have a response, maybe from another individual, but maybe from a choir who says, let's reinforce that notion. And so we have these three couplets. And the first one starts, he will not let your foot slip. That's a comforting reply. And it's also one reason I'm convinced that the mountains are a place of physical danger at the beginning of verse 1. One of our church members, Brian Ano, is, uh, has as a goal to hike the entire Appalachian Trail. Now he's doing it in segments. But when we were talking about this in Bible study the other day, I said, to me, I think of the Appalachian Trail as some meandering trails, kind of level through the woods. Maybe every once in a while there's a step. And he's going like, no. That, like, you know, I've been on a couple places in the Appalachian Trail for maybe 100 yards or so, and that's what they're like. But Brian says there are a lot of places where it's like rock climbing on the Appalachian Trail. It's dangerous, and it could be climbing up or climbing down a steep face of a rock. So again, uh, 
in, with that image, the psalmist is saying, he will not let your foot slip. And when Brian is out there on the Appalachian Trail, he has to sleep at times. And the psalmist also recognizes there are times through the mountains where I have to sleep, but the choir responding to him says, listen, the one who is watching over you, he will not sleep or slumber. You may recall that story in 2 Kings where Elijah is taunting the prophets of Baal who are not answering with fire. And in his taunt, he says, maybe your God's asleep because ancient, God, ancient people believed that their pagan gods needed rest just like humans do. And the psalmist is reminded, your God, Yahweh, never sleeps or slumber. He is okay. So now we're introduced to a word that's going to be a theme for the rest of the psalm. It's used about six times. Watch. So this God who never sleeps will watch over you. He is your watcher. In fact, the first form of this is a participle. He is the one who is watching. The watching one is not sleeping. All right? So, but the word doesn't mean just watch as in observe. The word means to guard or protect or preserve. God is the keeper. He is the guardian. When our children were learning to drive, uh, they knew that my wife's favorite word for teaching a teenager how to drive was watch. And she doesn't just mean like look everywhere all around. She means watch what's in front of you and respond to it. But she was also exercising the role of their keeper, their guardian, saying into their minds and hearts, always be on the alert. You have a role in this as well. So then we get to verse 5, and the same word is now used as an active verb instead of a participle. The Lord watches over you. He's engaged. He's involved. He's proactive. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The right hand is where the king's champion or bodyguard would stand. When you read this psalm for the first time, you might be puzzled by the next line. It says, the sun will not harm you by day. We all get that part, right? You need, if you're in the mountains, particularly in Israel, there are hot desert mountains, and you need protection in the day. But then he says, nor the moon by night. Why do you need to be shaded from the moon? I've had a lot of people ask me about that this week. There's literally a spider crawling up to my microphone. So... Not that I'm particularly worried about spiders, but I ended his life. All right. Uh, I was not watching over the spider, all right? Not in a positive sense. I would like to tell you that only ancient people had superstitions about the moon, but I've heard it this week from nurses and teachers and counselors. When it comes to a full moon, especially, like the moon makes people crazy. All right, so if, if, you, if you haven't thought about this, the word lunar and lunacy come from the same root word. And this is what the psalmist is talking about. So in the daytime, when there's sun, God will give me physical protection. In the nighttime, which might make me crazy, God will give me emotional protection. But either way, that's really not the psalmist's primary point. He's doing something he loves, that the psalmist loves to do. And he do, he'll do it again in this psalm as well. He's giving you two opposites to be all-inclusive. So whether it's daytime or nighttime, God is watching. And then verses 7 and 8, the inclusiveness continues. The Lord will keep you, there's your word again, from all harm. Some translations say from all evil. God will watch one more time over your life, your soul. And then we have two more inclusive opposites. Watching over your coming and going 
and now and forevermore. So coming and going might refer to a traveler who is leaving home or one who is returning or leaving the temple after one festival and coming back, you're coming and going, or it might refer to birth and death. So you're coming into the world, you're leaving the world, God is there, but the point is by giving you the polar opposites, God is watching over everything in between, and God is also watching over your present and your eternity, both now and forevermore. So there's no moment in your life that God does not see, that God does not guard, that God does not help, that God does not keep. He is the one who watches you. All right, so that's verse by verse, except don't close your Bible yet. There's one more thing I didn't point out, and that's at the very beginning of the psalm, which is often overlooked, and when we read Scripture, I'm not even sure we read it today, did we? Like, we, we need to put that in our Scripture because it's part of actu- the actual text. It is a psalm of ascents, or song of ascents, A-S-C-E-N-T-S, if you're not looking at the Bible. So this is a psalm for climbing, for going up. And it is one of 15 of these psalms, and we will spend the next few weeks talking about these songs of ascents. You're probably accustomed to having captions in your Bible that were added there by an editor. And if, for example, it says a traveler's psalm, That may be a caption added by an editor, but those words, a song of ascents, are actually in the Hebrew. They're just as much in the Bible itself as the rest of the verses. So as I wrote in my pastor's pen in the newsletter this past week, there are a number of theories to why these psalms are titled this way. I won't go through them all with you now, but the most popular theory and the most likely is that as pilgrims made their way to three annual festivals, in Jerusalem, from wherever they were, they were always going up because geography didn't matter and elevation didn't matter. When you're going to Jerusalem, you're always going up. So these were songs for climbing to Jerusalem for the festivals. And this will be a theme through our weeks of studying the songs of ascents. The choir is going to sing today, we are climbing Jacob's ladder. And one of the questions the songs of ascents will ask, are you just stagnant? Or are you climbing higher spiritually? Are you going toward a deeper, closer walk with the Lord? So one of the reasons that this is such a popular psalm is that we do so much coming and going. And we do so much climbing through life. We're always on the move. Life is a journey, but it's a series of upward journeys. And this psalm provides so much comfort to us. Some even recite it before a trip. David Livingstone recited it before he left for Africa in the 19th century. It's often read at baptisms and funerals. Again, it's the coming into the world and the leaving into the world. Ten days ago in this sanctuary, I preached a funeral for an 11-week-old baby. And without really thinking about what the whole psalm wrote, I just put in the bulletin, call to worship Psalm 121. It seemed like the right thing to do. And on the day of the funeral, I was getting ready my manuscript, and I realized that Psalm 121 ends with, he will watch over your life, and no evil will befall you. And I thought that's probably not a very sensitive thing to speak at a funeral when the parents of a baby are sitting right in front of me. And so I only read the, two, the first two verses just because it wasn't time yet in the service to explain the context of this. And that's one of the reasons this psalm is troubling. So for many people, it's comfort. It's wonderful. God will always be there. 
But what about the person who's just experienced a recent tragedy? What about the person who's just gotten a diagnosis of cancer? What about the person who was just in an accident? What about people out in California that are dealing with wildfires that are chasing them away from their homes and their livelihood? What do you say to that person when the psalm says God's going to protect you? He's your keeper. He will guard you. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. Your foot won't slip. So this is, this is the pastoral reality of preaching on Psalm 121. And it's not the only psalm. If you've been following our daily Bible readings, there are psalms that say it even more strongly. Psalm 91 says this. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the Most High your dwelling, in other words, if I trust God, no harm will befall you. No disaster will overtake you. Or Psalm 34.10, the lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. No good thing. What do we do with that? What do we make of such statements when a baby dies, or a disaster happens, or you lose your job, or your marriage falls apart? What do you do with this part of the Bible, and how does it help you climb higher? I've often said from the, this pulpit, and probably will say again, that the word promise is overused by Christians in reference to the Bible. So you may have heard there are 5,000 promises in the Bible, and God will keep all of them. The problem is that when you look up the word promise the way it's used in Scripture, the Bible itself doesn't use the word promise to apply to your favorite Bible verse. I really like that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Therefore, that's a promise that I can claim. Or, you know, he's watching the sparrows. Somebody said in, in one of my Bible studies this week, but sparrows fall and they die. So, you know, what does it mean when we have such a blanket statement in the Bible? Well, you have to be careful calling them promises. The, promise, the word promise is used in the Bible in reference to the great plan of redemption of God. He promises that Israel will be his people. He promises that Christ will come. He promises the Holy Spirit will come. He promises to return. Those are the ways the Bible uses the word promise, not about a favorite Bible verse that says something that you like to hear and find comforting. And the danger is, when you claim these verses as promises, you will most definitely at some point find yourself disillusioned and disappointed with God. And you'll go like, I just stepped over a curb and broke my ankle. I thought he said I would, my foot would never stumble. I claimed that promise. My child just passed away. I thought he said no evil would harm me. God must not really mean what he says. God is not trustworthy. That's the danger of claiming verses in the Bible that were not intended as promises. So let me say something and then I'm going to unpack it for you. Psalm 121 is not a promise, it's a poem. Psalm 121 is not a promise, it's a poem. Now, what do I mean by that? The Psalms are poems and express themselves poetically. The theology is sound. They're talking about God and what it says about God, that he's always there, that he's your keeper, that he's your guardian, that God knows everything. All of that is true. I'm not undermining the theology. I'm saying that the way the words are used 
There's poetic language. And we all know that poems use different kinds of figures of speech to intensify the meaning. So let me give you a couple of examples in a non-poetic world. If two lovers are staring at each other in the eyes, like the two minutes before the hour on, a Hall, on the Hallmark Channel, and one of them says to the other, I will always be there for you. Okay? And then w one of them gets into a car accident and is paralyzed. And he can't always be there for her. Or she's on a business trip when he, ha he loses his job. And he's going like, I thought you were always going to be there for me. No, it's poetic language, and it means that, that you can trust me. All right, let me give you another example. Suppose a mother is holding her child who is going to die. The child has cancer. It's maybe hours or minutes before that child's last breath. Wouldn't that mother still say to her child, I will be there for you. I will protect you. I will hold you. I will keep you. I will always be your mom. Right? So this is somewhat poetic language, and it's at the moment when someone needs the most assurance. All right? So if you take that and then you literalize it and say what God means is nothing bad's ever going to happen to me, there are two problems with that approach that are biblical problems. All right? So number one is you have to understand the difference between a poem and a promise. Number two problem is you also have to take into account lots of other scriptures which do say, in this world, you will have trouble. Or there's Job. You want to wrestle with the problem of evil? You go to Job. You don't go to Psalm 121. So if you think I've ruined Psalm 121 for you, two ways today. Number one, it doesn't mean the mountains are a place of refuge and strength. Number two, it's a poem and not a promise. Let me now close my sermon by restoring this psalm to an even deeper greater beauty for you. Because I, I have three takeaways from Psalm 121. And number one is the importance of blessing. The importance of blessing. This is a psalm of blessing. And we have forgotten the joy of using words to bless and encourage others, and specifically using God words. Many of the, the, the much of the language that we use that used to be a God blessing we've sort of taken God out of it. So, for example, when you, my wife sneezed across the, uh, she has an office across from mine yesterday, and I went, bless you. You realize the original form of that was God bless you. Why don't we say what we mean? God bless you. Do you realize when you say goodbye, it's a shortened form of God be with you? When you take Stephen ministry training, you learn that one of the primary tools a Christian caregiver has in his or her toolbox is simply a blessing. It is the ability to say to someone, God is with you in this moment. It is the ability to quote to someone what the choir will sing at the end of the service today. The Lord bless you and keep you. So, the importance of blessing is part of this psalm. So we have someone who's setting out on a difficult journey, and this person is assured of God's blessing. You bring the God factor into it, the importance of blessing. Second take-home from this psalm is the unimportance of location. And this is why taking away the idea that the mountains are a place of refuge is so critical to the meaning of the psalm.
If you're going through a hard time, and you go like, if I can just get to the mountains, I'll be okay. There may be just as much a false sense of worship in that as the pagan shrines. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not taking away the wonder of the mountains. I love to go there, but it's not the mountains that are the blessing any more than the valleys or the hills or the beach or anywhere else. The unimportance of location is what this psalm is talking about. Because the person is starting out on level ground and facing the mountains, and what matters is not the mountains, it's the one who made the mountains who will guide and guard and keep me through the mountains. So we are a culture that thinks we need something new to find comfort. I need a new location. I need a new church. I need a new wife or a new husband. I need a new job. So that's all about location. The psalm is saying to us, you don't need a new anything. It's the unimportance of location. With apologies to all the realtors out there, it's not about location, location, location. It's about whatever location you have, there's a God who will be there and keep and comfort and guide and direct you. And then the third take-home is the all-importance of your keeper. That it's, the psalm is really doing what all of the psalms do, and they turn us vertical. No matter where you are, you need to look up. The psalms of ascent say, climb higher, look higher, look even taller than the mountains. It's the all-importance of the keeper to which the psalm points us. As I said to the children, one of the things I love about the psalms is that there's a psalm for you whether you're bad or glad or mad or sad. The point of the psalms is wherever you are, whatever you're feeling, whatever your location, whatever your emotional state, there's a psalm for that. You remember when the iPhone first came out and they started having these things called apps on it and their slogan was, there's an app for that. Remember that? Well, there's a psalm for that. So if you are really happy and thrilled and God has answered all of your prayers, there's a psalm for that. If you're down in the dumps and you say, I've spent the entire night crying, there's a psalm for that. If you have sinned so badly and you say, I've destroyed my family, nothing is ever going to be the same and it's my fault, there's a psalm for that. If your emotions are just flat and you go like, I don't feel high and I don't feel low, I'm just depressed, I don't feel anything at all, there's a psalm for that. If you're mad at someone and you're going like, I am so mad I could kill somebody, there's a psalm for that. If you're mad at God and you say, God, the world isn't fair because all the evil people are getting all the good stuff and the good people are getting nothing, there's a psalm for that. And Psalm 121 is the psalm when you're facing mountains that you don't think you can possibly climb. There are too many dangers, too many risks. You're not sure you're going to get to the other side of it, whatever your mountain is. Friends, there's a psalm for that, and it's Psalm 121. And God, the one who made heaven and earth, will be your helper. And God, the one who made heaven and earth, the Lord, the personal one, he will be your keeper. He will be your guard. He will be your guide, both now and forevermore. That's Psalm 121. Let us pray. Oh God, one of the challenges of preaching to so many people is that we bring so many different emotions and experiences and present circumstances into this place. And I just thank you that whether or not my words hit everyone here, your name 
and your presence and your care absolutely does. It is the Lord who made heaven and earth. And we, we ask your blessing on those who have been devastated by fires in California, those that are currently at risk of life in hospitals, in nursing homes, in the military, or just because they know and love Jesus in places where that's not legal or accepted. We ask your blessing on them and your protection and your care. And we thank you that it's who you are that is ultimately our promise and our strength and our joy and our future. So may we find what we need in who you are. We ask in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.